Hello, and welcome back to the Steps to Investing podcast, your home for stock market news and ideas to help you beat low interest rates and rising inflation and get you investing in the stock market for a better return. I'm Marcus De Silva. This week, I've got lots on the pod. We're going to hear what the government thinks about the prospect of raising capital gains tax and inheritance tax. We're also going to have a look at how the property market has fared following the end of the stamp duty holiday that came in at the end of September, the end of that holiday. We're also going to see the what these what the impact potential of these suggested changes to the to the charging cap for uh, investments that go in your auto enrollment default funds and how that might affect your workplace pension. Plus, we've got the latest in markets and companies, as always. And we've got a really good interview as well with a cracking chat, Ben Constable-Maxwell. He's the head of sustainable and impact investing at M&G, big investment house. And he's going to take us through all the kind of latest climate and sustainability issues. He's going to talk about how that kind of translates along with big government spending and and a massive expansion of, of the sector into these these quite powerful growth drivers for the sector and also give us his hottest investment themes for 2022. As always, please subscribe if you haven't already to the pod and, and share it. Just, just sharing with one person will make an enormous difference. Okay, let's get going. Start with capital gains, inheritance tax. So particularly, you know, if you're investing outside of your ISA or SIP, or probably more appropriately, you know, you're looking to sell a house, then you might be quite pleased to find out that the proposed raises to capital gains tax are being rejected by the Treasury. It's So capital gains tax is applicable on any gains on asset sales of more than £12,300 in a tax year. So it could be shares, but also property, business assets, etc. As I said, it, it doesn't apply if you're investing through an ISA or SIP. And basically, a few days ago, the Treasury issued a letter to say to the Office of Tax Simplification to say, thanks very much for the suggestions, but we're not going to be doing any of those reforms to capital gains. Also, inheritance tax, and I'll get on to that in a sec. Um, and, and, and there's when I was speaking to analysts at Hargreaves Lansdowne, they think this is a bit of a relief because they thought there could be some unintended consequences of hikes to capital gains tax i mean i suppose they would say this uh given their activities attracts this sort of tax but one of the consequences they said was that you know it could have encouraged buy to let landlords just to keep hold of their properties um, for longer it sort of gives them an incentive not to sell it to to avoid the tax and therefore made it even harder for first-time buyers to sort of get onto the onto the ladder um what they are doing, though, is they're going to make it easier for divorcing couples to pass assets between each other without having to, you know, attract those ta- taxes without triggering CGT, which they thought was was quite good. Um, one area the analysts did think, though, that they kind of missed an opportunity here was on for inheritance tax gifting allowances. So currently, if you gift more than £3,000 in a tax year, and die within seven years, then the extra amount that you gave is part of your taxable estate, so it could attract inheritance taxes. 
And the reason why the analysts thought this was probably prime for a bit of change was the fact that that level hasn't changed since 1981. It's sort of been frozen at that state. So if it had been allowed to rise with inflation, then that would be £13,000 as 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 the sort of the limit so yeah they sort of they they feel like you know there could there could have been some rises there okay moving on we let's have a look at the property market so our friends at aj bell were chatting to us and talking about the latest bank of england data on mortgage debt and savings figures and what they were looking at was you know what's been happening with the housing market following the end of this stamp duty holiday um, end of September. And as you would expect, there's been a bit of a drop-off. So quite a severe one. Well, it kind of seems like it. So an 83% fall in net borrowings between September and October, which is the transition away from the holiday. And, uh, and, and you know, Somovich is psychological as well. I mean, I, th- I, think, I think the maximum that you can could have saved was 2,500, don't quote me on that, but I think that was the maximum. So it is quite a big psychological sort of factor behind this. And um, and actually, looking through these figures, even though that seems like a big drop, what, what the analysts were thinking was that it's really just normalising, and that was just a rush before the deadline, as you would expect. When you look at some other figures, approvals for house purchases, which is quite a good future indicator of activity within the housing market, you can actually see them sitting at the levels that were seen back in February 2020 before the pandemic came and inflicted its misery on us. So actually the, the housing market seems quite stable, quite quite normal. Mortgages remain at very low rates. We did see a slight uptick in November, but nothing massive really. And I suppose that's in anticipation of a rise in the base rate. That probably won't drop down for the moment even as it seems like that that rise in the base rate might be kicked out a little bit further. Okay, on to pensions. And the government's Department for Work and Pensions has come out and it's set out plans basically to water down what we describe as the auto-enrolment charge cap. So before I get into that, just as a reminder, you know, if you're employed and you basically earn more than £10,000 with your employer, then they'll have to offer you a DC, a direct, a direct contribution pension scheme under these automatic enrollment rules and they're very good they're very generous really good stuff and within these schemes what you have is default funds which most of us tend to go into we don't tend to do much choosing we tend to go into these default funds about 70 percent of the assets in these pensions tend to go into default funds and those funds are not allowed to charge more than 0.75 percent and the reason for that, uh, as an investment fee, and the reason for that is to protect people from basically being automatically put into a scheme which you know they are contributing to, uh, as well as the employer, of course, that is ripping them off, basically. Um, so it's to kind of protect them against that. The problem has been, though, is that specialist assets, you know, the things like the alter- in the alternatives realm, private equity, infrastructure, hedge funds, venture capital all those kind of specialist funds do tend to charge more for their specialist work and it can tip over this 0.75% cap. And, you know, there's a few reasons why the government sort of want to kind of change this. They have big plans to spend big in these sort of alternative 
areas and upgrading our infrastructure and and building it back in a much more green way so there's a lot of money pouring into this and they'd like some private help really there's big pools of capital there and you know dc pensions are enormous enormous pools of assets and they can help sort of foot this bill um so you know they're, they're, they're keen for us to get involved as well and the caps obviously exclude a lot a lot of a lot of that um so they want to change it and also they also say quite publicly that these kind of alternative assets you know could provide great long-term returns they're long-term investments they're kind of perfectly matched for uh, pension assets and especially against the backdrop of more paltry returns that are you know being seen in mainstream assets and they're sort of predicted to continue into this decade you know further out into this decade so you know quite interesting that they're sort of watering this down Tom Selby, our, our pensions expert, AJ Bell, strikes a bit of a note of caution with this, saying that you wouldn't, you know, you've got to be careful that you don't have these enormously expensive funds that don't provide a lot of value after fees. I think for me, I'm a bit more positive. I think it needs carefully managing, but that we sort of, you know, we do need to, to, to be spreading and diversifying our investments widely into areas, especially here where there's a lot of, there's a lot of, uh, capital sort of flowing into it already and a lot of government spending within this area i think you could you know there's some there's some likely to be some good returns found here over the long term um you know a, a, a very expensive two plus 20 charging structure for a hedge fund not so sure but you know what about a really a really good green fund you know like the three and a half billion pound green coat uk wind it's got a you know pretty good dividend yield with a, with a, an ongoing charge of one percent, you know, maybe more so. So, um, some interesting changes there to to some of the rules, really. So, on to markets, and I think you probably guess the big news over the past fortnight. Really, it's the emergence of the Omicron variant of COVID, which has unsettled investors. It caused a big drop in markets, particularly last Friday, and investors never like. A lack of information they tend to assume the worst and there's two big big bits of information really that they're sort of waiting to hear about on how this is going to affect us the first is will it lead to high rates of hospitalizations and the more severe forms of of the disease and how it affects us and from the pharma companies you know will the vaccines that we currently have still work against omicron and of course, if these questions are answered grimly, then the fear is that new restrictions will be needed, could mean lockdowns, further lockdowns, which could kill off what is already quite a fragile economic recovery. So far, what we've heard is quite mixed. So BioNTech and Pfizer's vaccine, they said that it should continue to protect against severe forms of the disease. GSK also said that about their vaccine. But treatments from Regeneron and the vaccine from Moderna may be less effective. Moderna CEO came out and said he was worrying about that. So it's causing whipsawing in the market, really. And it comes as this week, they're also weighing some comments from Jay Powell, which left some heads being scratched. The US central bank chief came out and he said, he would consider ending their QE program, the big bomb buying program, more you know, ending it more quickly if inflation doesn't recede in the second half 
of next year. Um, you know, they're starting to unwind some of the language they had around transitory and talking about that so much, um, which means, you know, they're obviously, they're obviously worried about inflation. And of course, the sooner that QE program is wound down, the sooner rates could rise. And of course, markets think about what impact they may have. And, you know, what's also a bit worrying is that COVID has always been an, an excuse to be quite what they call dovish. So when central banks say we're going to keep everything loose, our monetary policy is going to be kept loose. So we'll keep the taps on, we'll keep rates low, we'll keep everything, you know, maximum boost to keep things, you know, ticking along nicely because we're a bit worried about the economy. But at the moment, what we're seeing is even though we've got these rising concerns about Omicron, this man is sounding quite hawkish, as they would describe it. So talking about tightening monetary policy, reducing the QE program, you know, potentially raising rates. And that sort of rattled them a little bit because you would think it, it sort of conflicts against actually what we're seeing uh, is going on with Omicron as well. So it means that they're, they're probably worrying a bit about inflation. And that's not helped by the fact that we've got these supply chain log jams, which are only made worse if there's more restrictions, potentially. And, you know, um, broadly, the mood just outside of the Fed from central banks around the globe is that, you know, inflation is something they're thinking about and rates may need to rise. Um, in the UK, we're sort of seeing that echoed. There was a BO, uh, Bank of England survey of businesses and businesses are thinking about inflation as well. Uh, the average expected for next year is 4.2% from, from, from those uh, questioned. And they were also saying as well that hiring is quite, quite tricky. Uh, they're finding it more difficult to fill positions. So a bit of concerns in the market, it seems. All in all, the S&P 500 over the two weeks has dropped 192 points to 4,513. The FTSE 100 dropped 149 points to 7,107. The Stock 600 dropped 24 points to 464. And the Nikkei 225 sank 2,041 points to 27,753. Okay, final little section on companies. And we've got a couple here. EasyJet, let's start there. So EasyJet were actually one of the top buys on the interactive investment platform over November, which is pretty interesting given it's been quite recently hammered by the Omicron worries, being quite a one of those companies that's quite exposed to what's going on with COVID. Um, on Tuesday, it released uh, EasyJet released its full year statement and it said that pre-tax losses were less bad than than analysts would have thought they might have been at 1.1 billion. So it includes this enormous 52% drop in revenues to 1.5 billion. But that drop was cushioned somewhat by the fact that they slashed costs by 33%. Striking an optimistic note, the company said that while it didn't know what the full effects of Omicron would be, it still expects next year's travel capacity to be back to pre-pandemic norms by the summer. So we'll, we'll see what happens there. Unless the Hargreaves also think it's not all bad news. I mean, it's impossible to predict what will happen with travel next, given its very raw exposure to restrictions related to controlling COVID. But it does, the company does have some competitive advantages. 
and these are twofold really firstly that low-cost short-haul flights were probably going to recover especially you know around europe we're going to recover a lot more quickly than long-haul flights and also it has quite a lot of price slots at good airports you know it's 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 managed to sort of keep and retain those so those two things uh you know are quite attractive about the company as well so it's a recovery story but it's probably quite a risky recovery story because who knows what will happen next with covid and our final story is pets at home you know lockdown you know lockdown loser with easyjet really to lockdown winner pets at home is really really smashed it out of the park and it's certainly enjoying its moment in the spotlight half year revenues rose 18% to 677 million and 600,000 underlying profits rose 77% to 17.2 million and it told the market basically that it will deliver full year profits at the top of its estimates so doing pretty well analysts are sort of saying that it doesn't really get better for pet superstores than what they've had over the past 18 months hordes of people have bought a host of little furry creatures to make their lockdown misery slightly less miserable and following this sort of tidal wave of puppies and kittens the trend doesn't seem to be letting up either you know it's uh it's thought that there's there's ballooning interest in rural living has helped and that much more flexible working conditions uh also help as well so it's doing pretty well you would think bricks and mortar retailer that's got to be tricky but new pet owners want some assistance really from real people and quiz them about you know what young baxter or mrs fluffington really want so it's doing well it, it has to you know the risks are it has to navigate online growth but overall the picture is looking pretty rosy for pets at home so it's been doing quite well okay let's get on to the interview with mng's sustainable investing heavyweight investor ben constable maxwell over to me ESG funds, also known as responsible investment funds, are those that invest in companies with high corporate standards regarding their environmental impact, things like key business and community relationships, that's the social side of things, and management practices, that's the governance side of things. What this means is that sustainability is a core consideration for the businesses. And strategies targeting these types of companies have been extraordinarily popular with retail investors in recent years, as more of us are looking to do well by doing good. At Hargreaves, by far the largest UK investment platform, there's been a 6,000% uptick in purchases of the strategy over the past five years. And in particular, it's been very popular in the run-up to COP26, the UN climate change conference with the sector receiving two-thirds of september's entire fund inflows so we thought we'd speak to an expert fund manager from this area to discuss the landscape and the outcomes of cop 26 and also to peer into 2022 for the hottest themes in esg investing so i'd like to welcome head of sustainable and impact investing at global investment powerhouse mng ben constable maxwell ben welcome Hello, Marcus. Uh, thanks for having me. Great to be here. Shall we start with the conference then? So, you know, what sort of happened? What was broadly agreed? And do you think it will be game changing? Yes, a, a very, uh, very topical question. We, uh, I mean, we think that that um, it has to be game changing. Um, and, and there were 
really high expectations going into uh, into COP26, into this year's COP. Um, and, you know, there was a, a lot of progress in important areas, but also I think uh, realistic to say some disappointment about, around uh, kind of areas that weren't quite delivered on. Um, when the broad goal was, was on this sort of concept of keeping 1.5 alive, uh, and crucially that was absolutely kept on the agenda. Um, uh, and, and, and one of the important aspects is that governments are going to meet next year to uh, to update and to accelerate their their decarbonisation plans, their so-called uh, NDCs. Um, so that's a, an important, I think, agreement achievement. Um, two of the world's biggest CO2 emitters, China and the US, uh, also agreed to, to get together uh, and cooperate on climate action over the next decade. That's a really momentous uh, issue. We It's obviously subject to political risk to some degree, depending on what happens in the leadership of those countries, but 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 it's an important statement of intent. Um, again, at a country level, India uh, was one of the later uh, uh, players to the table um, in setting net zero pledges, but they set a net zero pledge uh, by 2070, a little bit behind some of the countries, but for a country the size of India and, and, and its stage in development, we think that was actually a broadly positive step, albeit uh, we'd like it to, to, to be accelerated. So, so those are some of the kind of broad agreements. Um, just touching on a couple of other aspects, uh, uh, you know, it was the first ever COP to, or, or COP to explicitly uh, target action against fossil fuels uh, and it called for a phase down of unabated coal um, and a phase out of fossil fuel subsidies. So actually the fossil fuel high carbon emitting uh, part of the part of the economy and part of industry um, was really a specific focus this year which it hasn't been uh, previously. There are a couple of sort of side developments which were also really important in our mind those were things around uh, a, a significant number of countries not not all of them but a significant number of countries agreeing to um, to address deforestation explicitly for the first time uh, signing a pact to re reverse deforestation by 2020 methane uh, which is one of the most uh, potent greenhouse gases um, uh, there was a, a, again a group that got together to commit to reduce methane emissions by uh, by 30% uh, by 2030 um, and also uh, a real focus on helping countries that are more vulnerable to climate change helping them to um, to become more resilient to and, and adapt to climate change so increasing the finance to enable poorer countries to address that big impact uh, or those big impacts from climate change. Okay, interesting. I mean, there's a lot of big promises in there, I suppose. Um, presumably, this is going to have a big impact on government spending in this area. Absolutely. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, the, 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 the kind of climate crisis requires uh, you know, holistic approach and systemic response, really, and, and, and governments are massively important within that. Um, it goes without saying, really. Um, uh, and, you know, there, there's probably two angles about government spending. One is that we really need governments to, to increase their public uh, financing and funding of, of climate action. Um, so big uh, response uh, uh, from, from governments required. They've, they've failed to deliver on that last point I made in the previous uh, kind of comment. The last, the, they've really failed to deliver rich governments to deliver on providing finance to, to less wealthy countries to address, to decarbonize and also to address the risks of climate change. But, but there's no recognition that they are, they've really got to 
dial up funding to to lower economy, uh, uh, lower um, lower lower income countries. Um, we also need to see national plans really driving up investment in 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 uh, clean tech, in in innovation, um, in in uh, clean infrastructure. So. Uh, we think that will absolutely follow. Uh, but the other angle is um, we think that governments and public policy needs to set the right agenda for private investment. Um, so again, we think uh, the setting the signals for private investors such as M&G um, to make long-term sustainable investments in areas that we need to develop in the economy. Um, we think that, that this COP will act as a trigger to governments to improve policy. That might think around things like um, setting uh, carbon prices, uh, setting the right subsidies, ensuring we're not subsidizing the wrong things, uh, those, those sort of things. So we think that's uh, an area to focus on and, and positive developments overall. Okay, interesting, because I was going to ask about how this sort of feeds into the investment space and how this influences private investment. I mean, do you think it has a big expansionary sort of effect when you get this sort of top-down kind of emphasis from governments? Absolutely, it's a really it's a systems level uh, kind of challenge that we face in climate and related issues, but also uh, you know systemic response that's needed. Um, so uh, and you know it, one of the things about this COP, some people called it the finance COP, was it, it really did um, bring in uh, to the greatest extent ever the the finance sector, um, and and I think that was recognizing uh, that that private finance has a massive role to play in filling the, some people call the SDG funding gap, two and a half trillion dollars a year are required if we're going to meet the sustainable development goals. You know, sort of huge numbers required to, to, to focus specifically on climate uh, resilience and mitigation and, and, and dealing with climate change. So big role for investors, uh, they're at the table uh, in, in, in the most significant sense ever. Um, and I think you're seeing specific and positive developments in, in coalitions and initiatives. Uh, for example, one of the big stories this year's COP was um, the announcement that $130 trillion of assets are now committed to net zero. Um, uh, we're one of those organizations in MG who's made who set a net zero commitment and, and we need to uh, uh, Sort of demonstrate and deliver on our action plan for delivering that. There's a huge number of people at MG uh, working on that, as, as well as at other as, as well as at other firms. Um, but but you know it's about making the commitment and then delivering on it with clear milestones and evidence of progress. So I think um, the the finance sector uh, needs to play a very very big role, and I think it is stepping up to the plate much more to do. And in a way, I think. These two, these different groups can pressure each other. So if we feel that governments need to set more ambitious targets, then private finance and, um, and, and the corporate sector, as well as obviously civil society pressure, can really encourage and push governments in the right way. Well, OK, let's focus on that because I find that really interesting. So the fund management groups themselves are making their own commitments to net zero. Can you explain exactly what you mean by this? And how you plan on delivering it yes exactly so so that 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 um 130 trillion dollars uh of, of finance that committed to net zero um it's it sort of generally made up of a couple of initiatives the net zero asset managers initiative and the net zero asset owners initiative those people who who we as asset managers manage the 
uh, funds for, pension funds, institutional investors, the underlying investor. Um, so, so these commitments are uh, uh, one thing, but, uh, and what net zero means is it means that our investments by uh, a set date in the future, whether it's 2050, um, or, or some of uh, the more ambitious investors are bringing out forward to say 2045 or 2040 or even earlier. And I think we're gonna see a directional, directional travel towards earlier on and later means that your investments will be net carbon neutral. So in other words, any emissions that your portfolio emits will be counterbalanced by, um, by offsets or by uh, nature-based solutions that actually help to store carbon. But essentially it means decarbonizing your portfolio. Now that is a very difficult thing to do um, for big firms and big funds with billions or even more in dollars of assets under management. So you need a really structured approach for doing it. As I said, we've got a lot of people at MNG in our sustainability and stewardship team working on the detail, but really it's about looking at where your biggest emissions are, uh, either reducing those emissions, i.e. Uh, kind of encouraging those businesses uh, to reduce their emissions, or if they won't do that, selling out of the um, of the uh, of those companies that are failing um, even in spite of engagement um, but also investing in climate solutions which are those those areas of, of, of the of, of the of the economy that are actually can provide decarbonization solutions or help businesses to avoid or reduce their emissions and or actually trap and store and, and utilize carbon dioxide in 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 a, in a as part of their, their input so it's uh uh, huge challenge, lots of detail, but I think the important point is we can't make a net zero commitment without following through on the detail, action plan, progress and, and results. So um, much more work needed there, but we've uh, got to keep, keep the pressure on. Well, it, it, it segues nicely into my next question, actually, which is, of course, you know, what you've got to be able to rely on is is the data that you're receiving on those companies to understand exactly how you know, they impact the environment. And there's been this issue of greenwashing. So companies producing very nice glossy reports saying about how, you know, and, and, you know, with seemingly good ESG scores, but how much of that is actually true and how transparent um, is it in order for you to be able to see whether that's true? How, where are we in terms of resolving this issue of greenwashing? Yeah, so the question of greenwashing is, as you say, it's a growing issue. Um, and it's potentially a massive problem because the reason people are concerned about greenwashing is that um, if companies and, and investors and, and, and governments, for example, are making commitments but not delivering on them, we're, we're really delaying much needed and urgent action on climate uh, action and other sort of social and environmental challenges the world faces. So greenwashing isn't just a bad thing philosophically, it's actually really problematic in terms of delaying the necessary steps to decarbonize our economy and, and deliver a more sustainable uh, fair world in which to live so it's got it's got some challenges ahead um uh, and I, and as you said you used the absolute right point there i think marcus it's it's partly about information and data and and transparency so i think the the big protections against greenwashing are getting the right information because without information or data you can't really demonstrate that you're delivering on what you are saying you're going to, delivering on your commitments. Um, data helps you understand your progress and helps uh, investors hold companies they invest into account. Um, 
but, but also you, this, this disclosure is really important. So being transparent about it, um, communicating with your stakeholders, um, that, that, that's a crucial element as well. And also, I think um, that transparency point needs that you shouldn't be, uh, you shouldn't shy away from being honest about the challenges in getting, for example, to, to net zero. Um, you know, some of the challenges are around data. We don't have perfect data to understand climate change, for example, in certain private markets or in certain regions. So we need to push for better data, um, but recognise that that's a challenge. Also, for example, the fund management industry, I think, needs to recognise that we need to get the buy-in and the support from all of our clients and customers as we move on this net, net zero uh, journey. So, the, the, you know, it's not a straightforward uh, operational process, but it's absolutely crucial. Um, and uh, it, we need to sort of walk the talk. We can't just make lofty commitments, whether we're investors or companies, and expect the world to applaud us. We have to deliver on it. Otherwise, the urgency required is going to be lost and we're going to be in even more trouble down the line than we are now. Yeah, I mean, presumably the there is quite a big challenge in terms of standardising data and getting good, clean data. Um, is, is, is the regulator helping in this respect? Yeah, so um, whether it's in the UK or in, in Europe or actually increasingly around the world, regulators are really focused on disclosure. It's almost, um, if you look at any of the uh, major regulatory or legislative initiatives, often they use disclosure, transparency as a lever, like I was saying, it's such an important um, uh, driver for, for action is, 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 is showing what you're doing. Um, you know, there's the, there's the old adage that, that what you uh, don't measure, you don't manage. If you measure your carbon emissions and your, your sustainability impacts, then you, you tend to manage them better. So regulators recognise that they're using uh, data and disclosure as an important lever for, uh, for to, to drive action by companies and investors. Um, and you know the EU's Sustainable Act, Sustainable Finance Act the action plan um, has uh, transparency and disclosures at its heart. There's the SFDR, the Sustainable Financial Disclosure Regulations in Europe, which are really putting pressure on on investors to be to highlight to our customers what we're doing and how we're doing it and what where we need to do more. Um, and in the UK, we've got an equivalent piece of uh, sort of legislation coming out um, hot on the heels of the SFTR called the SDR, um, which pushes not just investors, but also companies to be more transparent and articulate their sustainability risks and what they're doing about them, particularly around climate change, but other areas. So, um, yeah, and, and, and these initiatives are calling for uh, for disclosures on information. There's also initiatives pushing for more standardised data. So the um, uh, IFRS uh, Foundation recently came out with an International Sustainability Standards Board, uh, which is a very significant development. So there's lots of positive movement here. Um, investors and businesses actually have to follow up and, and deliver as, as often as the case uh, uh, and follow that regulation and, 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 and live up to it. Okay, let's get on to the sort of crystal ball element of the interview and have a little look towards 2022. I was wondering if you could sort of walk us through five of your hottest investment themes at the moment. Okay, so yeah, crystal ball time. <laughs> um, uh, let's hope 
it's, a, it, it's clear rather than murky, but I mean, I think it's a fascinating area. Um, you know, those of us who work in sustainable or impact investing, there's always something really exciting to look forward to, uh, kind of representing the scale of the challenges that we're all trying to focus on. So um, looking forward is really important. Um, and, and, and I'll touch on a couple of like thematic areas that we think are really interesting investment themes, if you like, and also some interesting developments a, a bit more around uh, the idea of impact investing, which is investing to drive positive change or investing in, in companies and, and, and assets that we believe are generating positive social and environmental impacts for people and the planet. Ben, can you just quickly describe what we mean, that terminology? You know, we hear ESG investing and then we hear impact investing. So what's the difference? Yeah, so uh, it's a, it's a, they're both very kind of closely interlinked. Um, uh, they're all part of what we describe as the responsible and sustainable invest, investing spectrum. Um, but, but ESG investing is really about thinking about the key risks that might, uh, the key ESG, environmental social governance risks that, that might uh, de derail a company's strategy or might cause reputational damage or, or cause harm to the business. Um, whereas impact investing is more about investing directly in businesses that that uh, it will deliver a positive, measurable um, outcome on social or environmental factors. So, one of the ways to think about it is as being uh, ESG investing is about outside in. So it's about external factors and how they affect a company and its and its likelihood of success. Whereas impact investing is more about inside out. In other words, how does the business um, affect, hopefully drive positive change on people and the planet. So um, they're, they're, if you like, two sides of a similar coin, of the same coin, um, but they actually serve different purposes. Impact investing tends to have an objective to try and improve uh, outcomes for social environmental uh, issues, whereas ESG tends to focus on ESG uh, these issues as a risk input into the investment process. Okay, brilliant. I think that's that's pretty crystal. All right, well, let's get on to your your themes then. So, uh, what are you going to start with? Okay, well, maybe just picking up on that previous point. One of the things is uh, one of the areas I think is really uh, necessary and exciting is more of a shift towards impact investing as it happens. So, more of a focus on the outcomes of our investments. Um, uh, you know, I think ESG has been really important. It's a really crucial part of the process. But we increasingly see from our clients and customers, uh, we want a demand to, to help them understand how our impacts are driving positive outcomes or, or, or creating negative outcomes. So obviously with a focus on the former. So um, I think we really need to embed that thinking, not just thinking about the risk, but actually thinking about what good can our investments do? And you have to be able to measure it. Um, it can't just be uh, a sort of, okay, well, I think this is a healthcare company or I think this is a uh, energy company that's gonna help keep the lights on. You actually have to do a really detailed analysis. So that would be um, one aspect. Some people call it double materiality, um, but essentially it's about thinking about the outcomes of your investments as well as the risks to your investments. So that'd be um, the first one. Um, Maybe uh, uh, another uh, point would be um, the, the importance of partnership and cooperation. I think one of the things we really saw at, at COP26 at this year's climate change conference um, was 
this point around needing to get uh, uh, all actors, all parts of the chain uh, within the economy and society to get them to work together to come up with solutions to decarbonize the economy and to, to, to address climate change. So, um, you know, we're, we're, we're increasingly looking at how companies from different industries interact with each other can can work together to drive change. So, for example, um, sort of clean tech, uh, renewable uh, energy, um, uh, electric vehicle uh, and, and sustainable transportation, all these famously and notoriously use materials, uh, raw materials, uh, which can often come from um, from mining practices that aren't very sustainable. So we need the mining sector to work um, with the automotive sector, with the, with the consumer electronics sector, with the clean tech sector, and ensure that supply chains are clean and that these businesses are, uh, are driving um, good standards and practices in not just environmental sustainability, but also in, in, um, in sort of human capital and, and, and in labor relations and community relations. So that would be an example of, I think, where uh, you know, partnerships can really help to drive positive change. Um, another one would be uh, you know, thinking about some of the, like people call them hard to abate sectors like steel and cement. So these are businesses or industries that emit a lot of uh, greenhouse gas emissions but are really necessary for building infrastructure. So how do they work with, for example, hydrogen uh, producers to ensure that you can reduce the environmental impact of your, of your steel, of your cement, of your infrastructure? Um, I think that's a really interesting angle. And finally, I think it's how does uh, how have all actors in society work together? So we talked about COP, we need governments to, to really take ambition to another level, but to set the right policies that, that businesses can, uh, uh, businesses can can really embrace uh, the investors, understand the, the, the policy signals um, that enable them to invest for the long term in sustainable projects and sustainable businesses. And how do we all work with civil society, NGOs, who are really the experts and the leading lights in some of these areas of sustainability? How do we all work together? Because I think if we don't work together, we won't come up with the necessary solutions. Marcus, so th those were a couple of, um, of the uh, sort of like higher level uh, issues um, that I think are really important and have been very evident in this year's this year's COP. Um, one other one, I uh, maybe a couple of others I, I would mention would be on that more thematic angle. What are areas that are investors looking to invest in um, mm -hmm. to drive sustainable outcomes, but also to drive positive financial returns. And I would say one of those is, we've talked about a little bit before previously, but the circular economy, you know, it's really interesting that however much we decarbonize power, however much we reduce emissions from, uh, you know, the heating system and the, and the uh, uh, kind of power and electricity, um, roughly half of global emissions come from industry and agriculture. So how do we actually address those emissions in, 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 from in, in, in you know, roughly half the, the, the global economy. Um, and one of the ways to do that is by designing a more circular system. So that means reducing the uh, use of virgin raw materials, that mining sector example, how do we use more recycled materials rather than having to mine it in a potentially environmentally damaging way? 
Um, how do we use those materials for as long as possible without single use, certainly, but without sort of chucking away after a short life? Um, uh, how do we use the waste products from industrial processes and feed them back into the system as an input? So in a really circular, circular model. In other words, how do we design out waste from, from a traditional linear um, system? Now that is going to have a massive impact on emissions, but also on uh, the, the, the equal risk to the climate change, uh, the climate crisis, uh, which is the kind of ecological crisis, which probably brings me to my next point which is the yeah the, the 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 increasing focus and the acceleration of thinking about biodiversity loss and and putting it the other way around how do we invest to support nature to preserve natural resources and to conserve uh you know the world's forests and and other uh, other other uh, uh, kind of rich uh, ecosystems and the services that they provide to to humanity, to the economy, but also to businesses and investors. So I think there's a big shift heading towards um, thinking about biodiversity as a, as a real risk to our investments. You know, trillions of dollars of, 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 of global assets are reliant on, in fact, you'd argue the whole of the economy is reliant on the natural resources and the services provided by nature. You know, the economy doesn't exist without without natural capital. It's very much built on natural capital, but we're extracting um, and degrading that natural capital much too fast. And that's, as I said, partly linked to the linear model, which extracts excessively and wastes excessively. So with that circular mindset, I think we can really target the, the nature-related risks that the world uh, is currently not managing at all well. Um, and, I, and we believe that this is an issue that is going to follow hot on the heels of the kind of climate agenda and is, you know, is rapidly gaining ground. Um, and, but, but there's also positives. We can, I think we need to help work out how to finance the, the conservation of natural, uh, natural resources and natural ecosystems. How do we build uh, forests in a way that promote biodiversity, grow forests in a way that, that, that uh, promote biodiversity um, and, and ensure good rights for, for, for indigenous uh, peoples or local communities. Um, these are like really, really crucial issues. And I think they're really now um, getting onto the agenda of, of investors uh, in, in a very serious way. There are lots of initiatives like the Task Force for Nature-Related Financial Disclosures, which is pushing investors to um, to address these issues more effectively and 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 um, and also to think about the opportunities that come from financing positive uh, nature-related solutions to the climate crisis. Do you know that's some really interesting stuff? I mean, an awful lot to unpack. Really, I think your you know your first three it makes total sense. It's the, the agenda spreading its way through the entire sort of like verticals of businesses and, and the economy and and just and just seeing it take hold with its roots sort of spreading quite widely. And I think those those last two as well. It's this cue from nature. You know, nature has always worked in a circular way and it's very well balanced. So you know, why can't we have processes that work in a similar way? I mean, how could 
linear continue forever because obviously it's not sustainable because it's linear and you know and I think in terms of biodiversity one of the interesting things I heard the other day on the news was Bear Grylls you used to think well actually the environment is pretty solid you know it can resist um, our kind of activity and then of course has very much changed his mind as well and and realizes that these ecosystems are very fragile and and our activity is having a big effect on them we don't want to lose that so um yeah lots of interesting themes yeah i mean just just completely agree i mean on, on that and that final point you're right i mean you know we're, we're very aware of of um of sort of temperature warming uh, uh records and data and and uh, greenhouse gas concentration of course carbon dioxide concentration in the atmosphere those sort of kind of data points which we hear more and more we're hearing less about the uh the the impact of of industry and and kind of business as usual activities on on the natural world i mean we see it in um in david atterborough's uh, uh documentaries and, and and from people like bear grills as you say but but actually we're not seeing the data and the information coming through to investors and businesses yet but i think that's beginning to accelerate and um you know we really need to treat the biodiversity crisis with the same gravity and urgency as we do with a climate uh, challenge so so um yeah i think you know th this is a really important point uh, and hopefully cop 26 and, and other uh, 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 other sort of initiatives um, taking place at the moment will really drive a focus on the ecological as well as climate challenge that we face and 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 uh, we'll, we'll you know turn a corner uh, it with the speed and and well with the speed that we really need to well on that note i'd like to thank ben constable maxwell ben thank you thanks marcus and thanks for listening well we hope you enjoyed that interview with ben there a really knowledgeable guy of course about this whole area which has been very popular with retail investors and i think that's it's quite a nice interview it gives you good context as to what's sort of driving the industry how it's sort of changing some of the challenges they're facing and then of course some of those big investment themes for next year don't forget there's still a totally free magazine available the link is in the bio just click on it you can immediately start reading it through our flipbook technology um, and, it, and it spans quite a lot of different topics within investing around strategy and ideas etc so give that a read and share it on as well if you think some other people will be interested in it aside from that we will be back in a fortnight you'll also see there's a few pods there's a few ideas for your portfolio out at the moment uh, so give those a listen if you fancy delving into some of the strategies of individual funds and, and how those fund managers go about managing them until next time goodbye Thank you.